Welcome to this special bonus episode of the Passive House Podcast. I'm Zach Semke, Director of Passive House Accelerator, and we are pleased to be sharing a series of bonus episodes recorded at FiasCon 2022 in Chicago. These interviews were made possible by generous support from Stoke Corp and Zola Windows. In this interview, Passive House Podcast co-host Matthew Cutler-Welsh speaks with Dan Whitmore, longtime passive building trainer and FIAS board member. Enjoy. I'm here with Dan Whitmore at uh, FierceCon in Chicago. Uh, great to have you here, Dan. Very nice to be here. You're not from this part of the world, slightly slightly west? All the way to the west, northwest corner of the US, uh, Seattle, Washington. Yeah, and uh, been hanging out with Zach for a little while in a previous life. Zach and I had a terrific opportunity to work together. Um, we started working together eight or nine years ago. We worked together in the same office at Hammerham for three or four years. Yeah. So in the office at Hammerhead, you're, you're not on the tools? Uh, so I, I was um, partially in project development, yep. significantly in terms of what we should build, and then I would help the teams figure out these complex passive details, right. how to implement them on site. So that was my, that was my I was bringing the, the passive house techniques to the, to the field, yep. helping figure out what should be built, what we should put on the building, helping the architects get the yep. details that we wanted to build into the building. Yeah. Uh, doing the energy modeling, working with Skylar on um, the energy modeling, and then just um, just making sure we delivered the projects to the passive house. We'll come on to that market for passive house, but just rewinding a little bit back to how, how did you get into that in in the first place? What was your sort of background into the building industry? So I started in the construction world in 87, 86, 87, somewhere back there. Uh-huh. Um, tools on, carpenter, remodel, um, however, my real introduction to um, high-performance building actually started in the 70s. My parents built one of those Jimmy Carter-era um, uh, solar active and passive homes, little right. buildings. So I was indoctrinated as a teenager. In what With the focus on lots of sunlight, thermal mass, we insulation. We a rock box in the building. Did you? Like yeah. a trom wall? No. The, 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 the thing that was... So there was the, the slab and the tile and the big uh, windows to the south. Yeah. They actually used... Um, it was a functional R22 wall at the time. The code wow. was R13. Yeah. There, there was an insulative sheathing used. Yeah. Um, there was no attention paid to air tightness whatsoever. No. There was no ventilation consideration whatsoever in a leaky building. Um, uh, but there was thermal mass. There were big windows to the south. There uh-huh. was, uh, big windows to the west, which totally overheated the building. There was a rock box in the core of the building, though, yeah. where um, solar thermal panels on the on the roof yeah. would uh, there was a fan that would pump air from these solar thermal panels down through some ducting put that energy into this literally i think three tons of small wow. diameter yeah. rocks yeah. in a plywood box yeah and then at night there was another fan that would take the energy stored in these rocks so it was not the trauma you see it was literally a rock box in the mechanical room wow. filled with three tons of small rocks uh, and did it work Kind of. <laughs> uh, I imagine that was kind of trial and error, right? Nobody had done the thermal calculations, but that'd be pretty hard to model. 
it, it was it was a standard detail that people were using right. here in in the U.S. at the yeah. time. It, it was definitely an experimental phase. Yeah. Did it provide more energy than the fans consumed pushing the air during the day and then out at night? I would say the it helped. Yeah. Certainly, it helped. Yeah. But, um, it it was able to take the edge off of the the the, the water source heat pump that was uh, wow uh, heating and cooling the building. That was pretty advanced. Uh, but you did mention overheating. Um, well, not with the water source heat pump, but you know, but my parents being trying to save energy would you know push the push the uh, which you know the thermal mass was able to keep the peaks of the heating down a little yeah. bit so our, our set point could be a little bit higher. Yeah. But we would have to retreat to the non-sunny side yeah. of the yeah. building uh, during those hot afternoon days. So that's a bit of a background and, and so there's obviously a, like a consciousness of um, trying to be efficient but also looking at what's available from the sun um, and, and just being conscious of, of the way people build and, and live. So has that influenced you... In, in your professional life? Absolutely. So when I entered the construction world, I entered with that knowledge because I saw mm. it being built. You know, we were out there. Well, yeah. Watching. We, we weren't doing the building outside of, you know, site cleanup. Yeah. Sort of yeah. Uh, but I had, I mean, I, I, did my, I did my science project on solar energy. Right. In seventh grade. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, with that, then when I ended the construction trade, I was like, you know, I, I had that background knowledge, but it, it wasn't being implemented because yeah. the experiment failed yeah. or it wasn't a priority across the industry. So my, uh, I, but I did carry that information forward, like, hey, we could be doing this, we could be doing this, the occasional, you know, double stud wall here and there, these sorts of things. But for me, the light bulb went off. I, I ended up... Um, working for some developers in Seattle in the early aughts, so 20 years ago now. Yeah. And, you know, I was building nine houses, and it was like, here I am, 25 years later than that building we built. Yeah. My parents had built in Oklahoma, and I'm building notably worse than what a quarter of a century ago was being done. Right. It's like, no, this is not okay. Yeah. And so... This is working for other people, right? Working for other people. Doing what you been told to build exactly i mean it's standard construction yeah. you know um and uh you know trying to bring a ecological viewpoint um but at the same time i was also very interested in the politics of energy and how the, the politics of energy were defining the political dynamics globally but yep. also domestically so you know i was doing political activism over here and then i was having my day job over here and i was like you know so no i need to evolve this and, yeah um, um, so I started kind of looking for what was going on in the world in terms of better building. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, um, try this, look there. But then in 2008, a friend sent me an article about Passive House. And I was like, there it is. It's a combination. Right. Because it was, a, it was the narrative of we can take the knowledge I have from construction. There's a mm -hmm. community of people taking that knowledge and addressing political concerns regarding energy use yep. which I, and environmentalists as well. So I can combine all of these components into one sort of, you know, like we look at systems on buildings um, and passive is about looking at how the systems can inter interweave one another. Yep. Well, these are three of my main priorities is building good buildings, being uh, environmentally conscious and addressing the political disparities yep. in the world. Was that the first time you'd heard of Passive House? Yep. yep. 
It was an article uh, actually about Katrine. Uh, it was in the New York Times. It was published, I think, in 2008 about Katrine yeah. in her house in Urbana. Right. In the New York Times. And I was like, and a friend sent it to me. And I was like, oh, wow, this is. And then shortly thereafter, she came to uh, give a short, uh, brief talk that a friend in Seattle had arranged. It's kind of a slightly historical, monumental moment in the. In, in Cat likes to reference to it. So we had a, uh, an information session right. at a, a library in Seattle. Yeah. It's a little common room. Yeah. There literally were people hanging out of the windows to hear it. Right. Like, there was, you know, it technically, you know, terrible for COVID time. But, but uh, <laughs> a room that should have held maybe 30, there were probably 80 people. Wow. And it was just uh, word of mouth caught, just caught fire. And it was like, this is such a so exciting moment. So, got to speak, see Katrine speak there, and then shortly after, just dove in. So it made sense immediately. Oh, yeah. What about the whole airtightness thing? Because that wasn't part of the experiment that you lived in. Yeah. So, um, so I live in Washington State, a building in Washington State. Um, Washington State is one of the regions where um, you know there's a lot of places where air tightness is seen as a, like, eh, that's, that's going too far. We don't mm. really need to worry about the building needs to breathe, take all those narratives. Yep. Washington State was one of those sort of uh, leading jurisdictions yep. that said, no, actually, we need to worry about this. And, yep. you know, there were, there were certain people who were worrying about it as practitioners yep. or advocates, but as an as a administrative jurisdiction, um, some of the forward-thinking uh, people who were part of defining code were like, no, no, this is really important. Yeah. So Washington State was like one of the first places in the United States to require a blower door test. Right. And uh, so it was already within the, you know, in 2001, the conversation was already going, do we need to build an airtight building or not? And so I was coming in at a place where the market was already a little bit evolved on it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Okay, what's going on here? So I, I um, and I, it was, just, you know, I like to, it, it. It's a really intriguing puzzle how to build a better building. Yeah. And when you involve a carpenter in it, yeah, who's intrigued by it, yeah. it's like, oh, I can make this. I can do this. Right. So that that was I was coming from that direction. It's been one of the main um, things I brought to, to the various uh, um, groups I've worked with over the years. Like, how do you build an airtight building? How do you how do you detail it on the, on the uh, on, I like to call it the cartoon set. Yeah. You detail the cartoons. Right. Um, and then you give the options. You work with the people who are actually going to be interpreting that cartoons, and you say, "Well, here's here's the various tools. Which one do you like?" Yeah. Um, so don't just no, just not just the person writing the writing the cartoon. Yeah. They need to ask over here. They need to ask me what I like to use. I'm sure architects appreciate being called oh. yeah, cartoon drawers. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. The contractor side. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you draw lines all over their cartoons as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so th- there's the how, mm-hmm. but what about the why? Do you, do, that obviously made sense to you straight away. Was that as a result of hearing Katrine? Or you, where did the penny drop in terms of the, the, just the realisation or the concept of airtightness being a good idea? Um, it, it came from, uh, it was an evolution for me. Like, it, it, you know, I heard it first and foremost as an energy answer. And that was like, okay, we need to build, we need to manage our airflow in our buildings. You know, the, uh, I was aware of, very much aware of the, the sick building syndrome. Yep. Um, and, you know, 
when I moved to Seattle in the in the late '80s, we were putting polyethylene behind our drywall. Yeah. And yeah. Like, but that technique was coming from other other yep. regions. But we were told to do it. Yeah. And it was like kind of weird. Yeah. And. Uh, um, I well, it makes sense for half a year, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, kind of. Kind of. It actually makes sense for half the days of the year. Yeah. True, yes. Not necessarily. That's a good point. Yep. Yep. But it, it, so Seattle, Western Washington is an interesting market because it's very influenced by Eastern Washington, which is a very different climate. Yeah, right. But the construction trades are also very influenced. Uh, so we. The, when I went, when I moved there, a lot of my coworkers had were working in Alaska simultaneously, or even Japan. There's yeah. a lot of um, itinerant travel. Yeah. So the people, um, one of the construction companies we worked for, many of them would go to Alaska to do summertime construction projects. Right. Right. And then come back. Yeah. And do the wintertime in Seattle. And so, talk about a different climate working on the North Slope in Alaska, where you're dealing with Arctic conditions, uh-huh. and then coming down to the maritime conditions. But, you know, in the trades, it's one, one building looks like the same from the outside right. and the inside, right. but what's in between it's point in, A and point B makes a little difference. So, yeah, um, yeah. you know, my contract, the guy I was working for, was like, oh, we got to put poly everywhere. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, oh, well, that's what we do in Alaska. Which is ironic because in some ways that more extreme environment could be a bit more forgiving for something like that because you've got that in, more extreme. I mean, they want that poly. Yeah, because yeah, you need that absolute barrier. Exactly. Whereas if you come down to a more marine climate, you need to be a little bit more um, nuanced and flexible, variable with, yeah, and I think that's a really good point about the, the diurnal changes between night and day literally that you're getting a different um different requirements for for wear vapor and suddenly we're getting into pretty heavy building science um which can be hard to communicate to anyone from the comic drawers to the people swinging hammers you've been involved in education uh for for sort of on since since then on this journey um tell us a bit about that and and how you go about that role of communicating the science and and the concepts of passive house um so i guess I love the geeky nature of, of figuring out why yeah. we build what we build. Yeah. And there's definitely some people who could care less. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. But there's many people. And I, I think that uh, if we... Uh, I, I think there's a... Um, an, an, an acknowledgement that there's many people in these trades who want to know why they do what they do, yep. but I don't think there's a, um, enough of a reaching out to say, hey, this is why, you know, like setting up of a system. There's also, you know, um, people in the trades, we're, we're paid to build buildings. We're not yeah. necessarily paid for the education. Yeah. And we learn on the, we're in almost, in most cases, especially my experience, the, I didn't go to a class at any point. Until right. I found hospitals. Right. I didn't go to any trainings. Yep. Uh, I just learned on the job. Yep. And so I think there's a, in, in the US at least, there's that's how you learn construction in many situations. Um, there are some trade schools, there are some programs, but for the most part in the US, a lot of construction workers just learn as they're going. And there's no funding, there's no, uh, there's no resources put forward to say, hey, 
What do you guys want to learn? What do yeah, people want yeah. to learn? But that's also part of the problem, right? Because if you're learning on the job, you're learning from people who are just going to teach you the way they've done something. So it just perpetuates the, the status quo. Um, when you, so, and you've mentioned there um, that there are some people who really like to geek out on stuff, others who don't. Do you, does that mean you have to tailor your your presentation and change how you present things to different people? Well, so so I obviously I like to geek out on the stuff. So when I found Passive House, I geeked out, and I yeah. that was, I went to the trainings, and I was like, wow, this is really exciting. Now I can actually I can I, I don't have to guess, you know. I mean, there's a lot of like, oh, I think this is better. I read an article in you know this magazine yep. about like, oh, somebody's doing this. I'll try it out. Yeah. But to be able to quantify it and and to be able to say, oh, not just somebody thinks it's a good idea, but I, I can test it. Yeah. Sure. And, um, you know, there. Uh, I guess this is a the, the, that line. The folks who developed the Pretty Good House movement. Um, yes. One of the very first carpenters I ever worked with yeah. was a, a guy. We we went to college together, and, uh-huh. and he finished, and then I left college, and I went to work with him four months later. Yeah. So he was my job. He was my site super because he right. was four months ahead of me. That's Dan Colbert, who, who coined the phrase the "pretty good house." He was house. a senior guy. Yeah, four months ahead of you. Exactly. Right, right. And we were learning on the job together. Yeah. But so the pretty good house. That's that's the diversion moment for yeah. us. Like. Pretty good house is about integrating knowledge that somebody else is doing and saying, "Oh, this is good enough." Yeah. Right. Me, I, I geeked out enough that I'm like, "Oh, I want to sit down and analyze it." Uh-huh. So maybe in a, another moment I would have been an engineer, but it yeah. wasn't going to be for me. I like to put sticks and bricks together. So with that, um, uh, catering knowledge to trades, there's definitely okay. This is there's two avenues. One. Showing people this is how we how, this is how you need to do the technique. Yep. And then there's another group who want to know why do we do those techniques and and then this is how you do. Yeah. Um, yep. And so I'm I'm in I'm in that side and uh, um, uh, and partially because I like to you know create I want to look at the puzzle and I want to play with the cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and and research about what marker I should use. On right. Those cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. So. The construction field has a wide range, and I my work has been mostly focused on on that that group. Yeah. Um, uh, and the sort of um, theoretical uh, in, interpreting what the scientists and theoreticians think we should do, looking at the components out there, and then saying, okay, I can do what they want to do with this stuff. Yeah. And, that, and so I have. Um, I've been working with Fias on their builder training program since its inception. Yep. I was one of the authors of the program. Yeah. Um, so ten years in, we, we, our job there is to say, okay, here's here's how the building scientists think. Yeah. This is what they're saying. We don't need to do the science, but we need to interpret their knowledge, and then we need to translate it into this is how you should build the building, because people in, in that role are the ones who have to work with the architects or yeah. the designers or the detailers yeah. help, and then translate to them what the folks over here want to do, yeah. what yeah. they can get to, to, to achieve those goals, but then have to turn about over here and say, this is why, this is why they wanted us to do that. Yeah. So right. it's this kind of in-between position. And that's, what I, that's, what, that's when I was in Hammer and Hand with Zach and, and Skyler. 
that was my main goal. Like yeah. Help detail them and then help the guys who are doing it, people, men and women, doing the work in the field interpret. Yeah, yeah, the idea. yeah. And also, they were coming up with amazing ideas and concepts. He's like, no, no, Dan, we, yeah. this is a lot easier. And then it was my job to go back over here yeah. and, and evolve the system. It's because um, one thing passive, uh, passive community brought to the U.S. market um, is a, we can do a lot better. And, yeah, um, yeah. And so, but it's been an evolution. That's why what really excited me was taking this concept of how do, we've got these goals. How do we how do we adapt our our construction practices, our components we use in that practice? How do we adapt those in order to deliver these better buildings? Yeah, and um, you know, um, uh, I could go out and source details from elsewhere in the world. I could go out and source components from elsewhere in the world, but the end goal is the same. Where yeah, from yeah, in the world. Yeah. It has a locality in term. In order for it to be widespread, I felt um, it was it was one of my goals to interpret it into things that the folks in the field could understand yep. and and implement widely yep. without having to learn details that happen halfway around the world. Where do you see things going? Uh, where would you like things to be in the next, say, five years? So, um, you know, one of the reasons that I'm on the FIAS board and one of the reasons I'm on the FIAS board is because I was so excited in the very beginning. They were like, we want to make this um, building code. We want to make this standard practice. Yep. And, uh, um, uh, and I've also had an opportunity in the past um, number of years, a little bit to help advise Washington State Code officials. Yep. Actually, not officials, but Washington State Code um Committees, yep, and they're like, you know, Washington State, proud of itself, and that it has one of the more advanced energy codes in the country, uh-huh. in and mechanical codes and all these elements. That, so the code itself is moving towards where we are already are. Right. And so I, a few folks, you know, got to be in uh, some meetings where folks were like, okay, we know by 2030 the code is going to get to where what you're building right now. Yeah. How do we stage this? Yep. And yep. and so my goal here we are at twenty end of twenty twenty two, almost twenty twenty three. My goal in five years is why did we Yeah, right. So yep. um, and uh, you know, the construction practices have evolved, you know, I started maybe five years ago. It's okay, that kinda looks the same. Yeah. But things have evolved. The components yeah, we yeah. use, you know. Yeah. I'm there was no OSB when I started. It was all, yeah, right. it was all plywood. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, many th- components have evolved, and styles and techniques have evolved. So it's a constant evolution. So my hope is that we all, um, because of the climate crisis, because of the hopefully the reinforced political will, is to move move the baton forward fast. I mean, that's kind of the holy grail, right? Getting into the building code, getting onto some of those advisory, having people... In those policy-making roles, listening to people like yourself who have the science and, and have the experience, um, and you know whatever it end up, ends up getting called, if it's if it's something close to yeah. to the performance of a passive house, then yeah. 
everyone's a winner. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I know New Zealand's doing the same thing, and I know other parts. Of the it's it's got to happen everywhere. Yeah. 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 And you know the. It is a monolith. It's not a monolith. It's a massive construction industry in all of its forms. Yeah. From the designers all the way to the folks in the field and all the suppliers in between. It's a, such a massive industry and it's very conservative because when, you know, when something goes wrong, it's an extremely expensive. It goes wrong in a big way. In a big yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we don't want to do it wrong. No. So there's an incrementalism yeah. that is. In some ways, and super risk averse. Yeah, yeah, very risk averse. Yeah, and yeah, conservative in that regard. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that uh, events like this help bring people together, yeah. um, so that we don't have to feel that we are lots of separate silos working on the same problem because it is the same problem. Yeah. So um, it's great to be able to share knowledge and, and experiences. And we do. I mean, people look at Ashray from around the world. Absolutely. So as codes change and as things get uh, influence and and, uh, and standards get put in place um, they do have a wider impact uh, which I'm really excited about because you know when when things like ASHRAE standards start to get developed around Passive House that has a trickle down effect or a ripple effect uh, around the world. So. Um. Yeah, it's, it's, you do have potential to have a big influence. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty. It, it's pretty. You know, it's a, it's a really. It, I mean, it's a challenging moment. It's a terrifying moment uh, as we look at the impacts. Yeah. The, as they're kind of coming to, you know, the, the, as the impacts are mounting upon yeah. one another. Yeah. But it's also um, it's an exciting moment because people are, seems like you know, after many years ready to actually do the hard work. Can people find you on online? Can they follow you anywhere? Uh, I don't have, uh, you know, I'm old enough that uh, social media is kind of like, it's not my thing. So, um, But uh, people can find Fierce. I've heard um, the, the Fierce website's been mentioned a couple of times yesterday as a great, very non-scary uh, website uh, non, uh, for, for non-passive house people. So, I mean, that's probably a good place to, to reach out with some of the work that you're doing. Yep, yep, absolutely. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I'll, I'll be. I'm in Seattle. I'm part of uh, Passmore Northwest. You can find me there as well. Yep. Pass, and, uh, meetings up there. Um, uh, I'm, I'll be working with Cascade Built on a, my own personal project, which is a 12 unit project. Which we haven't even talked about. We'll have to do that in another, another, another interview, yeah. just yeah. talking about some projects. Okay. But uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I fluffed on the uh, on the social media finding me. But uh, fine. Uh, um, I love teaching, um, so you can... Yeah, uh, uh, people can find you. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you Thanks for your time. Appreciate it.